of Jackson Elias, a regular podcast about Call of Cthulhu, horror films, and horror gaming in general. I'm Paul Fricker. I'm Scott Talbot. And I'm Matt Sanderson. And a Happy New Year, everybody. Yes, Happy New Year. Whoop, whoop. Oh, it's been a busy run-up to New Year. Paul and I went shopping a few weeks ago. Well, we have nothing to show for it yet, but some microphones should be coming through the, uh, the miracle of a post van uh, anytime soon. Yes, yeah, we've spent some time in a music shop in Northampton trying out all sorts of different recording equipment, trying to find some stuff that would give us the best possible quality for the podcast, and we hope we found it. Uh, well, meantime, I was stuck at my office desk. Oh. Yay. Yay, office desk. Uh-huh. The Blasphemous Tome is creeping towards completion, and we have a new milestone on our Patreon page. Yeah, uh, the goal that we've got up there is that if we hit $100, we're going to start doing audio recordings of various public domain weird tales. And we may even, um, well, it depends on the timing of it, but we may even do a recording of the tale that we're discussing this very episode. Da-da-da! It's a little late, but I do have a belated Christmas present. Uh Uh-oh. Hidden in my sock drawer. Oh, I've got two things actually, Matt. One's not a present. Okay, I've got a couple of things. <laughs> Rather evilly, they're both for you, Matt. I haven't got anything for you, Scott, which it's... I feel very bad about. No, Aww. no, no, it's okay. I, I'll just stand here and sulk. I can give you a kiss. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, please, please, please don't feel on the bound. Okay. <laughs> this is the first one, Matt, which you ordered. Oh, right, yes! <laughs> Tales of the Scarecrow for Lamentations of the Flame Princess. Hey, excellent. So that came through. Excellent. Uh, but this one is a present, Ooh. which I bought, I saw, and I thought of you. Oh, don't take it the wrong way. I'm kind of worried now. <laughs> it's, uh, it's it's not a fucking plush Cthulhu, is it? I hope so. Come on, come on, plushy. <laughs> uh, on a, while I'm opening this, on a random tangent, the competition that I won to do uh, to get another set of plush Cthulhus through the uh, Seas for Cthulhu Kickstarter. Yes. I backed another uh, Kickstarter-based competition. Um, no, a competition based oh, okay. off a Kickstarter and got notification I won that this morning, so I've got a leather-bound Cthulhu cocktail book turning up. Oh, cool. Yeah. Excellent. Congratulations. Ah! A minion! It's a, minion <laughs> on a, it's a soap minion on a string! Hey! <laughs> <laughs> oh, thank <Yes>. you. <laughs> I love minions, I must admit. <laughs> hmm. <laughs> yeah, you, can, you can see Scott just kind of narrowing his eyes and just going, hmm. <laughs> That's what we should kickstart next. So Cthulhu on a rope. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> yes, it smells of really a... <laughs> really a good soap. <laughs> so it has a vaguely fishy aroma to it. Yeah. <laughs> Innsmouth fresh. <laughs> oh, thank you very much. <laughs> Before we launch into the Lovecraftian word of the thingy, uh, th- I suppose we'd better say what our topic is this episode. This episode's topic is one of Lovecraft's greatest tales. Hmm. 
we'll have no dissension from you, <laughs> Mr. Sanderson. No. It's two votes to, to one, I think. The colour out of space. Mm. Mm. <laughs> but first... And now, the Lovecraftian word of the week. But first, our Lovecraftian word of the week, not the thing, is Insidious, a film I hear Scott really likes. An adjective, working or spreading harmfully in a subtle or stealthy manner, intended to entrap, beguiling, but harmful. Hmm, subtle or stealthy manner. A bit like how your tax return creeps up on you. <laughs> well, I think it's clear why you've chosen this one, Scott, given our theme for today. I think it probably fits fairly nicely with the story, and it's actually used fairly often in the story itself. I only, I only picked it up once right at the very end, because it's in the last couple of paragraphs. I seem to remember when I went through it, I found two or three uses in there, but I miss them, maybe but I'm, I'm imagining it. And it's certainly in discussions of the colour out of space, I've seen oh, yeah. it used quite a number of times. Yes. And the colour is, you know, as we'll discuss in the story, yeah, definitely an insidious influence. It's, it's probably, um, you know, the purest example of something we discussed in a very early episode of the corrupting influence of the mythos. And this is pure corruption, and that, that's, that's what insidious really means in this context. This sort of creeping corruption, this change, this degradation from within. So no astral, astral projection and no ghosts. Got it. <laughs> Well, shall we take a look at how Lovecraft used it in some other stories? From Dreams in the Witch House He would be lying in the dark, fighting to keep awake, when a faint, lambent glow would seem to shimmer around the centred room, showing in a violet mist the convergence of angled planes which had seized his brain so insidiously. And from The Rats in the Walls I heard voices and yowls and echoes, but above all there gently rose that impious, insidious scurrying, gently rising, rising as a stiff, bloated corpse gently rises above an oily river that flows under endless onyx bridges to a black, putrid sea. And from the case of Charles Dexter Ward, Dr. Willett and Mr. Ward caught something of a profound, subtle and insidious cosmic fear from this data as it was gradually unfolded, and almost trembled in following up the vague, mad thoughts which had simultaneously reached their minds. Before we discuss the story itself, let's take a little look at the background of how it came to be. Lovecraft wrote The Colour Out of Space in March 1927, and it was first published in Amazing Stories in September of the same year. Yeah, this is another story of his that was published in a, a science fiction magazine as opposed to Weird Tales, which is probably fairly appropriate because, again, this is a fairly science fictional story. Unlike, say, The Shadow After Time, I'd say at the, same, you know, at the same time, this is probably one of his most gothic tales. It sort of bridges the gap between the two strands in his work. You know, besides the well, the opening section where you have the scientists trying to explore the meteorite, there wasn't much that I would say is science fiction about it. 
other than the fact that it came from the stars, therefore it's science fiction. It, yeah. it has elements of sci-fi, but that's probably a different discussion entirely. Well, there's certainly a lot of science in it. Probably more actual science in this one than anything else. And you know, we see a lot of Lovecraft's background in, and interest in chemistry. And also, as far as where this takes place in, in Lovecraft's canon, uh, this is one of his earliest uh, major mythos stories. And it comes fairly shortly after the call of Cthulhu itself. Mm. And just as he was you know, ramping up to what I consider the major period of his, his writing. So I think this is you know, a fairly strong opener for that, that great productive period of his life. And now we look at Lovecraft's story, The Colour Out of Space. Uh, it's about 20 years ago when I moved into the cottage in which the, uh, the old shed was located in the garden of that cottage. We were decorating up the sitting room, and this was before I had children and, and everything, you know. I was a young man, you know. You were never a young man. Yeah, you? I was, sure I was. <laughs> I was working in various art departments and so on, and one of the things they had were, was a pyrograph, like a little electrical box uh, with a wire, with a, with a drawing implement at the end that, got, that gets really hot so you can write into wood, so it burns I'm, into wood. Are you sure this was an art department and not a mad science department? <laughs> because I, well, I, I I, an instrument called a pyrograph has definitely got to be mad science. There's not much difference between the two, at least not much separating them. <laughs> and uh, we were taking out the old fireplace and putting in a, a wood burner. Uh, as always, I wasn't very keen to pay anybody to do any of this work, so I just did it all myself. <laughs> I had to make some kind of fire surround. I got this oak, which I re then realised was really, really hard to cut. And uh, I made these two uprights to go either side of the fireplace, and I wanted to put some kind of decoration on them. So I used the pyrograph to put writing on them. And on one side, I had the final line of The Great Gatsby, didn't, and didn't he have something from American Psycho on there as well? Oh, there were lots of other little bits, but there were two major lines and then lots of little uh, little minor quotes down the side. On the other side, I had the first line of The Colour Out of Space. West of Arkham, the hills rise wild, and there are valleys with deep woods that no axe has ever cut. There are dark, narrow glens where the trees slope fantastically, and where thin brooklets trickle without ever having caught the glint of sunlight. On the gentler slopes there are farms, ancient and rocky, with squat, moss-coated cottages brooding eternally over old New England secrets in the lee of great ledges. But these are all vacant now, the wide chimneys crumbling, and the shingled sides bulging perilously beneath low gambrel roofs. Just that opening line about trees that no axe has ever cut, it just kind of, he could have just said that in a, in a much plainer way, but it just brings up images of old forests, almost kind of a Middle Earth type thing, but, but we know it's Lovecraft, it's more dark and brooding than that. Yeah, wild, remote, abandoned. I, he sums this up beautifully just in a few lines. And I think this is something that yeah, I want to come back to later. I think this is probably the best prose Lovecraft wrote in his career. Mm. It's an unusual story for him in that most of the, the prose in it is very measured. It doesn't have a lot of the adjectival excesses uh, that mm. you know, particularly marked his early work. And yeah, th this feels like a mature story. That, that I definitely agree with. There's, there's moments later on where it definitely creeps in. But the opening was 
say, a wonderfully descriptive piece. So that, that I thoroughly enjoyed. There was a line uh, that comes up quite soon when the, our narrator, who is a surveyor that's, that's entering this area, talks about, there was once a road over the hills and through the valleys that ran straight where the blasted heath is now, but people ceased to use it and a new road was laid curving far toward the south. This reminded me very much of the, the description of the area that we see in sticks that we discussed mm. in a previous episode, yeah. uh, the story by Carl Edward Wagner which it kind of gives you this impression of a, of a land that is both unpeopled and so on. But then we get this glimpse that, yeah, people, actually people did used to live around here, but they've kind of abandoned it, which makes mm. it seem almost even more bleak. But not just bleak, because as soon as you get the idea that this has been abandoned and shunned by people, that indicates some kind of dark history. Just that implication, just the ideas that it raises within one's mind, that immediately sets the mood for horror. Well, as you mentioned a moment ago, Paul, you know, the narrator of this story, at least the initial narrator, uh, is <laughs> fairly typically for Lovecraft, uh, an unnamed, uh, well, in this case, not academic. He's a surveyor. Uh, he's going around the area around Arkham uh, doing a survey because they're going to create a new reservoir there by flooding one of the valleys. And in the process of doing so, he hears some stories, as that little line you mentioned a moment ago uh, refers to the Blasted Heath, which I, is a great evocative name, one that's lifted, if I remember correctly, from Macbeth. Mm -hmm. that, again, in those two words, he paints a picture. In his first description of the Blasted Heath, which he says is about five acres of land, you know, it's, it's not that bigger, bigger an area. He says, as I walked hurriedly by, I saw the tumbled bricks and stones of an old chimney and cellar on my right, and the yawning black moor of an abandoned well whose stagnant vapours played strange tricks with the hues of the sunlight. Just a subtle indication of what's to come, and this kind of abandoned farm and an old well and so on. And we see that all in the first few paragraphs of the story. But, I mean, it's, there's an even more subtle thing there which is his use of the word more to describe the well. It makes it you know, immediately sound like a monstrous living entity, which, as we discover later on, it sort of is. Mm -hmm. And, yeah, just through that very, very careful word choice, again, he sets things up perfectly. When it talked about the, the strange tricks with the hues of the sunlight, this made me remember something reading it this time, that when I was a kid, I grew up in an old mill house my playground was in the backyard, uh, just full of old barns, of old uh, broken down farm machinery and, and chickens and, <laughs> this, and all sorts of stuff. This explains so much more. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I just remember being a kid, I don't know, I guess I was maybe seven or something, and going out one, uh, I think maybe afternoon, I'm not sure what the time of the day it was, and there was just this really weird colour to the light. Just everything was, it was kind of like... I don't know, it was kind of a yellowy kind of... It just struck me, this is really strange, but I had no explanation for it, I don't know. I mean, maybe it was like pollution or something, or just... I don't know, maybe there was a, a, a partial eclipse or something, but mm -hmm. um, there was just this really, really strange, eerie atmosphere. And was that when everything changed for you? Yeah, I was perfectly normal up to that point, yeah. <laughs> we, we actually had pretty much this, a similar kind of experience with that. Um, on the way down to our honeymoon, uh, me and Tiff went down to the south coast, to the um, place where Conception's held. The um, convention, say, high cliff. Yeah, when you talk about a honeymoon, that. you might want to clarify. Yeah, I'll, re I'll reword that. <laughs>
there was a stretch of road heading down, I think it's near the, near the M40 and heading south from there, where the sun was annoyingly coming down pretty much directly in front of us. And so all the cars sort of craw crawling to a halt as they realised, ah, crap, we're all being blinded by this thing. But rain had just passed, and it was like a, like a gold, orangey hue to everything. It was really, really odd. Yeah, if you get a, a strange coloration of the light, it just makes you feel like you are almost in another world, doesn't it? Yeah, certainly I've, I've encountered a few twilights like that where it's just something about the way the light hits the cloud and suddenly you get a colour in the atmosphere that you've just you know, never seen the air be before. And yeah, it is a very unnerving experience. Yeah, I mean, I, on, a, on a more positive way, I've heard David Lynch talking about the colour of the, the light in you know, L.A., and, and it kind of inspires him. I guess this is something we shouldn't ignore when we think about colours out of space. Again, going back to the idea of this being an insidious influence, that, I mean, it's not just the fact that, you know, as we'll discover as we go into the story in more detail, that this is a, you know, a sort of predatory, corrupting, poisonous influence, but it's the fact that, you know, it, it is affecting the mood and the minds of everyone around it. And certainly our environments do that anyway. You know, the fact that this is an alien colour, the fact that it's changing the way the landscape looks around these people, then, you know, that's, that's as much getting into their minds as any poison that it may have within it. And so our surveyor gets talking to the locals and he finds another brief quote here. It was not a matter of old legendary at all, but something within the lifetime of those who spoke. It happened in the 80s, and a family had disappeared or was killed. Speakers would not be exact. And because they all told me to pay no attention to old Amy Pierce's crazy tales. So he's like going around that, and this is like, you know, I'm thinking as Keeper, I need them to get talk to this NPC, and I'm like, Matt, you know, don't be listening to what old Amy Pierce has to say. He's crazy, he's cracked. All right, what are I you going to do? I won't go there then, I'll find someone else. Damn you. <laughs> Actually, no, you'd just go and shoot Amy Pierce. First thing you'd do. <laughs> he's he's, given, a, he's given a huge monologue. Of course I'm going to shoot the guy. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, it's kind of like, I don't know, it just seemed like a blatant thing to, you know, you've got to go and meet this NPC. <laughs> but it certainly sent a shiver down my spine when I read that the strange days, the terrible things, all happened in the 80s. <laughs> and, you know, I think we can all relate to that. I, I blame Thatcher. Thatcher, Reagan. But actually, this isn't the 80s. This is the 1880s. Mm. It's kind of strange how he refers to it as the 80s. Yeah. Because, I mean, I guess this happens every century. I mean, we're going to have the 20s soon. When we talk about the 20s, we think of the 1920s. The roaring 20s. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Give it another, you know, five, well, yeah, yes, four years now. Yeah. And, hey. and we will have to specify the 1920s. Yeah, yeah. Well, something very specifically happened in the 1880s. Well, in 1882 in particular... There was a meteorite that crashed into the Gardner farm, Nam Gardner's farm, or Nam Gardner, or however you pronounce it. This meteorite brought trouble with it. I thought for a minute you were talking about the Tunguska um, event, but that's much later. Yes, yeah, that's about No, it's earlier. Years. No, Tunguska. Yeah, no, I think Matt meant the Tunguska. Oh, I see. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because it made me think of Tunguska. I mean, every, everybody's kind of heard of this Tunguska meteorite in Russia, uh, which flattens like hundreds of miles of forest and everything. But that was an air bursting meteor. I would assume that Lovecraft would would be well versed in that. I mean, that happened yeah. when he was about eighteen, so that would have been reported worldwide. I'm sure. But some of the stories I heard said they could even hear it in London. It was yeah. that loud. Yeah. 
Uh, and I think people could read newspapers by the glow of, of the fireball. Actually, yes, this would have been a worldwide reported thing. And I was just looking up Tunguska on, on Wikipedia. And there was a scientist in 1930, I think, who did a, a study on it. And just by strange coincidence, his surname was Whipple. <laughs> which is, uh, isn't that Lovecraft's grandfather's yeah, name, Whipple yes. Phillips? Yeah. Mm. Just coincidence, folks, I'm sure. All comes full circle. But I think, yeah, as well as Tunguska, I, one of the things that apparently influenced Lovecraft on this was reading the books of Charles Fort, where he talks about meteors uh, or meteorites and strange events surrounding them in, in some of his books. But also, I had a look through the, uh, the, the new annotated H.P. Lovecraft, and they made reference to an article from Scientific American from 1846 about a meteorite. And the quote in there was, It appeared larger than the sun, illumined the hemisphere nearly as light as day. A large company of the citizens immediately repaired to the spot and found a body of fetid jelly nearly four feet in diameter. That's fantastic. It's jelly. Fetid jelly. Well, fetid jelly. I mean, it's gone off, right? But yeah. it was jelly. But, I mean, fetid is one of the adjectives that Lovecraft then applies to the water that comes from the well that's tainted by this meteorite later on. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, that, that does seem to be perhaps some influence there as well. well and, and the fact that the metal the meteorite's composed of is soft. Yeah. So maybe not quite jelly-like, but definitely unusually soft. Yeah, but is I mean that's a pretty strange thing. That'd be great to put into a scenario that that this thing. I mean, I think of meteorites as being you know really really hard metal if they've got metal in there. But at the time, they thought that meteorites were a jelly-like substance. That's what the note in the uh, in the annotated Lovecraft seemed to imply. Oh, possibly either that or there was something jelly-like contained within when it broke up. It's like a Cadbury's cream egg (laughs) (laughs) of evil. Easter presents from the heavens. What do you mean, of evil? <laughs> I'm going to jump in here. There was, a, there was a strange thing that he refers to. It just caught my eye as I was reading this, this passage. He says, It all began, old Amy. I'm going to call him Amy just because that's the way I read it, but maybe it's Amy. Uh, it all began, Amy said, with the meteorite. Before that time, there had been no wild legends at all since the witch trials. And then he goes on to say... And even then, these western woods were not feared half so much as the small island in the Miskatonic where the devil held court. Yeah, that's also referred to in Dreams in the Witch House. Yes, it is. Yeah. So, which is written a few years later. Yeah. So, obviously, you know, Lovecraft has started, maybe in his commonplace book, starting keeping ideas about Arkham and some of the legends that have grown up around there. And I believe some scenario writers have made use of this. I think, well, I think Brett Kramer's written something about this island in the, in the Arkham Gazette, hasn't he? That does ring a bell. But yes, it's a, it's a wonderfully evocative bit of Arkham lore, and though it has no bearing whatsoever on the story, yeah, it's just a nice incidental detail that also reminds us that Lovecraft was building up not just this particular story, but you know what became known as, as Lovecraft country in general. Mm. Anyway, back to the meteorite. This meteorite is obviously strange, and a number of professors come out to examine it. Now, again, this this is very, very Lovecraft, isn't it? None of the professors have names. They just seem to be this this sort of mass of of, uh, interchangeable, faceless people who turn up and are just known as the professors. The professors come along and do tests on the meteorite. There's quite a lot of discussion by, uh, and Robert M. Price has written an article about this, about this being some kind of analogue to the story of Job. Mm. But 
Lovecraft uses the word three wise men, or he refers to them as wise men, and they've been led there by a falling star. Oh, uh, yes. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> now you mention it. They're looking at it, and Nahum's like, oh, yeah, but, you know, it was bigger yesterday. Mm, yeah, the thing does seem to be, well, shrinking, breaking down, or maybe just dissolving into the, the surroundings. Now, the three wise men, they don't really buy that, because, obviously, meteorites don't shrink. But actually, I pictured it again. I kind of pictured it from, from reading it previously. I pictured it the kind of the size of a football or something. But this thing, when it landed, Amy says it was seven foot across. And that day, it's now five foot across. So that's bloody massive. Yeah, again, yeah. if something that big landed on the farm and it were of natural provenance, you'd expect it just to destroy the area. Yeah, I mean, I don't know what sort of size crater things of that sort of size would you would expect to cause, but I think pretty massive. Mm. I mean, the Tunguska one was an airburst, so yeah. it had a, a much bigger effect, I think. But, 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 but you'd still... Expect, yeah, you'd expect the shockwave of this thing landing to at least demolish the farm. But yes, the professors do all sorts of experiments on this meteorite. And... You, you mentioned earlier I mean, about Lovecraft's interest in science and in chemistry. And this, you know, th there's about a page of the story here, which I think is just Lovecraft indulging himself in, in talking about the scientific aspects of this that interest him and running through all the various experiments they do and the conclusions they come to. And it's interesting, but it reads like one of those sections you come across in various authors' works where it's, I've done the research, now I'm going to show you. You must eat your greens. <laughs> Oh, I didn't really get that. It led me to feel it was kind of real. It had a feeling, yeah, verisimilitude. It was, um, it was more like a an account uh, one might read. It grounds it in fact and makes, as you say, makes it feel all the more real. But at the same time, it is. I've, I've, I found that section very, very dull. Well, and, and also, I actually find it it breaks verisimilitude slightly because, bear in mind, this is being recounted, you know, 30, 40 years later by a farmer who has got no scientific training, but, you know, he's recounting all the details and the names mm. of the experiments and so on that these scientists did. Mm -hmm. When he wasn't even there. I guess in my mind, I'm thinking maybe the surveyor saw their papers. He would have gone to the Mr. Clark University but, and looked this stuff up. We're not told that. Yeah, but, but this um, has been given to us as part of Amy's account. Fair enough. So, yeah, I, it, it strikes me as being fairly gratuitous. I, I, I don't, I'm not saying it's a bad section, but, um, yeah, it's an odd one. It, it breaks the flow of the rest of the material around it. That's, that's what I found jarring about it. So this material has heat and it retains heat. When they get a bit of the meteor off and put it in a bucket, it, it melts the bottom of the bucket. It cools slightly in powerful acids. It wastes away in air. It attacks silicon compounds to their mutual destruction. And of course, it has an unknown spectrum when they put it in the spectrograph. This is one of the really cool bits that comes out of this that um, you know, it, it then builds up to that whole idea of, uh, well, once they, they start examining the globules within the meteorites, these globules of some strange colour, and then there's that wonderful bit, uh, you know, that it's a colour only by analogy. Mm. I mean, that's... That's evocative. It, it is, and it, for me, I think more than anything else, that sums up just how alien this is. This is something that initially bugged me slightly about the story, the, you know, the whole idea of this you know, unknown colour. 
that has come out on uh, this meteorite, that people are seeing it for the first time. Obviously, you know, the limitation on this, realistically, will be the human sensory apparatus. So the idea of there being a colour that, you know, because it's come out of space or it's alien or whatever that we're seeing for the first time, actually doesn't necessarily work for me because, you know, if it was something that we were never able to see before, our eyes you know, almost certainly you wouldn't be able to pick it up upon encountering it for the first time. A, it's this idea that it's only by analogy. And B, you know, some of the other descriptions that come out later on sort of made me think that this is perhaps something that is just bypassing all that. We're, we're perceiving it somehow, maybe through other senses, maybe, you know, somehow impinging directly into the brains of the observers... Uh, and this is why they're calling it a colour only by analogy. It is something just so alien to the concept of human senses that that's the best way they can come up with describing it, even though it's not actually right. I like the fact that it's a colour that is a different colour that we can't, you know, we can't classify because we struggle to make sense of that. And I think that's what you're doing there, Scott. You're, you're struggling to make sense of it because if it was a colour, why, you know, and we hadn't seen it before, how do we know it's a colour and so on? I, I just like that it makes your brain struggle to try to make <laughs> yes. sense of that. And I think that, that was the point. It's this alien thing that we can't get our heads around. And it doesn't really, uh, with our scientific understanding, or, or my lack of, uh, it, it you know, doesn't make sense. You know, and these, yeah. these misclient university professors, they couldn't make sense of it. No, it defies all their experiments. It doesn't behave in any expected manner. It is something utterly alien. And, yeah, well, this is great. I mean, this, for me, is what the mythos should be. It should be something inexplicable, something alien, something that our senses and our measurements and our science can't make sense of. It's also described as almost plastic, now, on a couple of things I've listened to, they've sort of said, oh, it's made of plastic, but, but no. What, what? Oh, no, because apart from anything else, I don't think the first synthetic plastic, you know, the first plastics have been synthesised around the time Lovecraft was writing this. He means plastic as in the adjective of mutable. Yeah, because um, working with clay, plastic is a kind of, yeah, like you say, it's a property that means it's kind of mouldable, so it's like plasticine or something. It's, you know, when, when they dig into it, it doesn't chip off, it just maybe scrapes off and they can sort of squeeze it like putty. Alien silly putty. Yeah. <laughs> when I was reading it, or rather listening to the audiobook, the, um, the description, especially as it keeps coming back to water later on, uh, later on in the book, gave me the impression of it being liquid colour, which again, just it's enmeshing two properties that shouldn't necessarily go together. But again, you know, later on in the story, it, it appears as a gas as well. So it's you know, perhaps the idea that if it does correspond to the states of matter we understand in the slightest, then it is capable of, of spontaneously, deliberately shifting between those states. Now, one of the things that I didn't pick up on on first reading was the, was the scale of this story over time. Mm. Uh, this actually plays out over about 18 months or a couple of years. Yeah. So nothing that much happens after the meteorite falls, except that Nahum Gardner's crops and his, his, his orchard, you know, really blooms that autumn and the fruit is, is coming on fantastically and growing to terrific proportions. But of course, when it comes to harvesting it, you know, this, this is all superficial. Within the fruit, you know, everything is, is dry and corrupt and inedible. The fruit and uh, the other crops have been changed into something else internally. When I was speaking about fruit like that, it just seems to be the experience I get when biting any fruit. I just don't like it at all. <laughs> you should stop buying Arkham apples. 
That's where I'm going wrong. <laughs> then we get lots of subtle, strange things in here about the footprints of animals. Naim himself gave the most definite statement of anyone when he said he was disturbed about certain footprints in the snow. There's even the twisted rabbit that jumps across the road, isn't it, that scares the horse? Mm. Yeah. And it's the fact that there's traces of the colour visible in some of the vegetation that grows around there as well, just hints of it. And a lot of the vegetation just goes grey mm. and, light, well, lifeless, brittle, dry. And in conjunction with this specificity on the science aspect, he also quotes a lot of plant names here. Uh, so we have skunk cabbage, Dutchman's breeches, bloodroot, saxifrage, and so on. So he's kind of specific, you know, which is something we're advised to do as, as uh, games masters and so on, is to put some specifics in there rather than just sort of saying, talking about vegetation in general or whatever. Then come February of the, of the following year, the place has a reputation. People are starting to shun it because you know, their horses are disturbed when they ride by. And people blame it on that meteorite having, you know, maybe poisoned the ground or something. But all is not well at the gardener farm. Poor Nabby, Nam's wife, or Naim's wife. I, I'll have to work out a way to pronounce that. Let's say Naim from now on. Mm. Naim's wife has... I don't think it's necessarily linked directly with the colour at this stage, but she has gone mad. I thought she was starting more to get melancholy and that they were all kind of a bit dour because the whole crops had failed and so on. It was more, more subtle than just going, she's mad. Yes, yeah. Oh, yeah. All right, mad may be a slight overstatement, but uh, yes. And Naam's pretty fair on his family. You know, he, 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 he figures they're getting depressed and then they're getting mad. And then a couple of times it sort of says how he lets them run around for a week. But then, you know, he can't have any more of that, so he just locks them in the attic. <laughs> yeah, that's yes. pretty reasonable, right? Um, but, and again, I mean, this is one of the reasons why I was talking about this perhaps, you know, being a, a gothic tale in some respects, because there are certain tropes of gothic stories which are writ large in the colour out of space. You know, the, uh, the, the remote rural location, uh, the, the family suffering under a curse, the madness, and then this whole idea of locking family members in the attic because they're going mad. I mean, yeah, this is gothic as fuck. Yeah, put, put them away for safekeeping. Yeah. He's got three sons, right? And it's not long yeah. before one of those also goes mad. And, you know, he's allowed to walk around for a bit. But then, you know, gets locked in the attic in the room opposite to his wife. And uh, little Merwin, the youngest child, fancies that they talk together in some terrible language that was not of Earth. Yeah. Oh, yeah, the I, screams. And this is sort of going back a bit to what I said about, you know, perhaps... The perception of the colour being something that bypasses human senses, the fact that it's sort of getting within us, changing the way we see the world. That there is perhaps this you know, insidious alien influence in there that as well as getting in there and sucking the life out of these poor people and changing everything for the worse, that it's putting elements of its alien alienness inside the human brain, that it's changing the people, not just killing them and poisoning them, making them something other. This ended up reminding me an awful lot of, um, there's a, a fungal infection that attacks ants uh, called cordyceps. Mm -hmm. It is a fungus, um, it spreads all over the body of the ant and produces these sort of kind of ridges and growths, but it then gets inside their brain and reprograms them. And 
Yeah, I wondered whether there was perhaps sort of a parallel here that, you know, they, at no point do the gardeners, you know, think about abandoning the farm or running away. They're, they're, they're rendered quite docile by this. have got the alien language, so it, you know, makes it feel like their brains are being reprogrammed. And then, if I remember correctly, and please, if you're listening and you know more about this, correct me if I'm wrong. If with cordyceps, if I remember correctly, you know, it, it then kind of ends up with sort of explosions at the end, where it's, you know, the uh, bits of the body or the growths explode into spores, which then go out and, and spread around. Which reminds me a little bit of the culmination of this story. When, when I read that particular section, I hadn't interpreted it so much that the colour had got inside them, but more that it was a discussion on madness in general, that maybe having been provoked by the same stimuli, that they'd both snapped, but in that time, that what their what that kind of madness that has gripped them, they found a common denominator, and that it was referring to the state more so than the fact that something had got inside them. And I found that more worrying, the fact that it's just you know the mind needs that little jar mm. to be pointed in the right direction, and suddenly then it, you just see the world in different light. But you can also communicate to others that have been put through that similar experience. Well, yeah, I mean there is a disorder that that goes with certain types of psychosis uh, called word salad where you basically start speaking... Oh, you still speak in your own language, but you speak in sort of incoherent, cut-up nonsense, pretty well compulsively. And I I suppose there could be an element of that, but this is described as an alien language, not just, you know, that they're speaking nonsense. It sounds like something far more alien. So come autumn of, of that year, things have gone bad. Thaddeus is dead, he visited the well. Merwin's now dead, the... Animals are dying. I mean, it, it talks about the swine, the pigs, having fallen to pieces before they died. I'm not quite sure how to picture that, but it's pretty grim. Yeah, I, I, personally, I, I sort of picture it as uh, them almost being desiccated. <laughs> the text I picture is if you've ever encountered astronaut ice cream... Uh, this thing that yeah, NASA developed and you know, they, they sell mail order, which is sort of this really desiccated ice cream that ends up with a texture a bit like uh, cavity foam. And you put it in your mouth and it deliquesces but, you know, and, and ends up tasting a bit like ice cream. But if you touch it or crumble it or whatever, it, you know, it, it just crumbles into dust. And they sell this stuff? Oh, yes. And I'm picturing pigs made out of astronaut ice cream. <laughs> Just think of the bacon crime there. (laughs) Amy visits Nahum, and it's clear that that things have gone really bad. Like I say, the animals have died and so on, and it seems pretty much now that Nahum is there on his own. Amy goes up to the attic to see what's become of Nahum's wife. And he finds... Well, this is what he says. Amy would give no added particulars of this scene but the shape in the corner does not reappear in this tale as a moving object. There are things which cannot be mentioned, and what is done in common humanity is sometimes cruelly judged by the law. A couple of lines later, we're told that Amy was carrying a stick for for no good reason, something he picked up in the attic. So, yeah, he's obviously gone up there and taken advantage of her crumbly nature to just crumble her. I, I think in Call of Cthulhu he went up there, he opens the attic door and he fails his sand check and he yeah. just beats the crap out of this dying woman. Yeah. Which went back to earlier where we say about that they don't give a specific definition of whether the family were killed or just went missing. 
Yeah, and again, we find the, the boys' bodies later are found in the well. The, the story doesn't say this, but it, it kind of made me think, you know, did Nahum just go mad and kill his family? It's, it reminds me a little bit of The Ballad of Hollis Brown by Bob Dylan about this, um, you know, guy, I think maybe, you know, in the kind of Dust Bowl era in the States, and he's living out in a little shack on the outskirts of town, and he ends up, you know, killing his, his family with a shotgun. You know, seven shots ring out in a, a South Dakota town or something like that. It's just a really grim tale, but it put me in mind of this. And the thing to bear in mind is that, I mean, while Abby is narrating all this to our surveyor, that all these elements as to what happened to the family and so on, a lot of them he is getting from Nam Gardner, who, you know, at this stage, you know, has been affected by the colour as well, is, is being driven mad, and is probably, you know, a very unreliable narrator. So, yes, I think that, that whole idea of, you know, uh, which one of the sons is it that went out to the well and never came back? That was Thaddeus. Uh, that was, like no, no, uh, no, that was Merwin. Merwin goes out to the, you know, the well, uh, fetches water, doesn't come back. Thaddeus is locked up in the attic. Yeah, and, <clears throat> yeah, if what you say there, you know, is a good interpretation, then, yes, it's quite possible that Nam or one of the other family just killed him and dumped the body in the well, and this is just what Nam's telling Amy happened. You talked about what good prose this is, Scott, but there's one particular line here when Lovecraft talks about the trees. It's, it's a great line, but um, it does kind of maybe play on, <laughs> on some of the things that, you know, get joked about a little. He says, uh, They were twitching morbidly and spasmodically, clawing in convulsive and epileptic madness at the moonlit clouds, scratching impotently in the noxious air as if jerked by some allied and bodiless line of linkage with subterranean horrors writhing and struggling below the black roots. Yeah, the main colour in that sentence is purple. <laughs> <laughs> it's a nice... I, I like it, though. I mean, it's, it's evocative. It is, but going compared to, as, as I said, the fairly measured prose of the rest of the story, it does stand out as being lurid. Uh, yeah, but it doesn't overstep the mark, I don't think. No, but it does, yeah, I mean, there's a reason why you pick that out, and it does stand out as yeah. being, you know, overwritten compared to the rest of the prose. Yeah, yeah. So, what does Amy do? He calls the police. <laughs> oh, there you go, you see, it's a valid tactic after all. Lovecraft said so. <laughs> Uh, so he goes back there with some uh, some police because oh sorry we skipped the part there where Amy well I'm not sure when does it happen I think maybe it's when um, it's his name's leaving he finds what's oh no when Amy's leaving he finds what's left of Nahum yeah Nahum's been yeah well he's he's no more yeah yeah he gives this these sort of dying words but dying uh, paragraph that's a hell of a lot for him to <laughs> spew out on his on his uh, I was gonna say death um, bowl as he's kind of liquefied <laughs> so Amy gets back there with the police. And they're looking around the place, and I think this is kind of evening now, maybe. I think uh, it's quite late by the time they get back there, if memory serves me correct. Yeah, they, they find the remains at the bottom of the well. They find Nahum's remains. They poke around. Dammy notices the, the slight glow of the colour in the building itself. Yeah, things start to escalate, and uh, Amy... Things start to escalate, and they decide that, you know, they, they mustn't go out to the well. I think Amy counsels them not to go out. Well, the, the well around this stage is starting to emit the colour quite brightly. There's this shaft of light going up to the heavens, isn't it? Mm -hmm. yeah. Well, they, they decide to flee out yeah. the back door, and they're running off wildly into the hills, where the hills rise wild. And, of course, 
what would you do? Would you look back? Hell yeah, I'll take yeah, that but, D20 so, sand hit. Yes, the rest of the people don't back, look back, but Amy does. So as Kiefer, I'm there like, okay, you run it. any of you want to look back? Matt does. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> well, much as in uh, the Mountains of Madness, you know, you look over your shoulder and there's something terrible. And, yeah, what Amy sees here is the fact that, well, most of the colour seems to have... Again, this sort of goes back to the, the cordyceps idea that, you know, it has completed its life cycle, it's parasitically sucked all the life out of the land and is leaping off somewhere else, up into the sky, up into the heavens. But Amy sees the worst thing back there. He sees that not all of it is left. Yeah, a little piece of it goes back down, right? Yeah. Back into the well. The, the image I like particularly in that moment is that the fact there is a very circular opening in the clouds as it shoots up. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, yeah. It's like a... I picture it kind of like one of those old World War spotlights, the searchlights going up into the sky, just this shaft of light going up through the... Mm -hmm. And then there's an opening in the clouds, but it's not like a white light. It's a strange otherworldly <laughs> light. And then a bit of it sinks back down. Yeah. I, I picture it sort of like a Gustave Doré print with kind of shafts of light coming down from the heavens, divine light coming down, just in reverse. In reverse. <laughs> and that's why Amy no longer wants to um, visit the area or indeed um, ever drink water from the Arkham Reservoir. Well, and it's not just him, it's the surveyor, you know, having learned all this. Oh, sorry, that's yeah. what I meant, the surveyor, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah sort of, you know, things, fuck this for a game of soldiers, you know, uh, uh, packs it all in, and yeah, just wants to get the hell out of Arkham. You know, and vows never even to go back to Arkham again. And, I mean, considering the soluble, pervasive nature that we've seen of, you know, the fact that the colour gravitated towards the well, this is, by implication, about the worst possible thing they could be doing. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, it's pretty much just letting it loose on a wider area. Yeah. But, oh, Lovecraft, you had to let yourself down. In the final few lines, we get, Then the stronger-minded folk all left the region. And only the foreigners tried to live in the crumbling homesteads. Those crazy foreigners? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh, God. Yeah. They, they... It's kind of subtle, but, you know, when you, when you zoom in on it, actually, no. I, we it, have to get a bit of racism in there. It, it wouldn't be a Lovecraft story without a you know, little soupçon uh, of racism. Mm -hmm. And in conclusion, what is our opinion of The Colour Out of Space? I mean, I would strongly recommend this story to people. Maybe maybe not as your first Lovecraft story, but I don't think you can really go wrong with it. It's not overly long. I mean, it's 30, 40 pages. We didn't really say about yeah. the length. Yeah, it's 12,000 words. You can read it in one sitting. Well, you, if you're not Unless Matt. you're Matt. <laughs> I fell asleep for five times trying to read it. <laughs> Just saying, five times. If anybody I, I, can break that record, I, let us know. Have you ever thought about meth? <laughs> I trust me. If I could get a hold of speed or anything, I would be on that shit all the time trying to stay awake. And read. Don't send it to us, folks. <laughs> We're fine. <laughs> if you want to find me at a convention, please do. <laughs> We're not soliciting drugs. I just want to make that clear. Speak for yourself, Paul. <laughs> all right then. What are our overall impressions of this story? Matt, do you want to go first, as you seem to be the dissenting vote? Well, I kind of more I sit on the fence. That, that There are bits of it that I really like and bits of it that I really don't. I love the way it's written. It's very different from a lot of other Lovecraft stories, as we examined with the likes of the opening paragraph. It is rich and vivid in its description. Not a bad thing. Um, it's gothic overtones. Yeah, not, not so bad. So, I mean, I've read a lot of goth, uh, gothic fiction anyway, so yeah, not not bad thing for me. 
just it seems to lack something especially the end I don't like that it's mm. just very abrupt in a sense it's oh I must make a note to um, to write the engineer who's heading over the project to note to keep an eye on Amy it, it just seems unfinished there's something about it that just doesn't seem to go anywhere you see I disagree there I think that it's less of an abrupt ending and more of an open one that it's sort of set up this horrible situation uh, that you know the history of the area now you know the threat that the remains of the colour uh, present you know that the valley is about to be flooded uh, and that this is all going to be drinking water from now on. I mean, there's nothing more that needs to be said. You've set up all the horrible implications and you just let the reader's mind play it from there. I know, I agree. Structurally, it's fine. It's just the way it's written just seems a bit, I don't know, unpolished. Hmm. And that the colour itself just seems a very boring monster. That, as I said, it's a seed pod that lands, you watch it grow and then that's it. I would have liked to see something more happen when it finally germinated. I don't get the feeling that it is a monster. I don't know what it is, but yeah. I mean, we'll talk about that more next time, maybe, when we talk about how we can apply this in gaming. You've talked a lot, Scott, about how things, you know, Lovecraftian, the essence of Lovecraftian is kind of undefinable and so on. I think this encapsulates that more Absolutely. than anything else. Mm-hmm. But it tied in with a really rooted in reality background and this very domestic setting, and the two mesh flawlessly. And I think Lovecraft himself went on record in, in some of his letters as saying this, that I think it, it was the purest encapsulation of what he was trying to do in his fiction. Uh, yeah. In other cases, he created things that were alien and weird and strange and so on, but still largely relatable in human terms. And he describes them as being unknowable, but at the same time, their motivations quite often seem to be broken down to very human drives. But in this... We've got something that is ineffable. I think, kind of narratively and structurally, this falls into some of the traps that Lovecraft tended to make for himself. I mean, I understand these were choices that he made for himself, but I've often found it difficult to get quite as emotionally involved in Lovecraft stories as a lot of others, because he... He, he tends to have this very detached journalistic style, and the fact that you know he tends to have characters narrating by remove things that they have learned. And in this case, I mean, you've got this unnamed surveyor. You know, it, the character, you know, like a number of the characters in the stories, is a cipher. We, we know almost nothing about the narrator. And the fact that he is then relating what someone else told him that happened 30 years ago, there's no real immediacy to that. But at the same time, despite all these things, I think this is probably the most emotionally engaging of Lovecraft stories. The fact that there's a real sense of poignancy and horror to the fate of the Gardner family, the fact that we're seeing this play out over time, and the fact that so many of the characters are actually named and we see little bits of personality more than we we normally would in a Lovecraft story, means that despite that degree of remove, I, I think this yeah this is amongst his most engaging works. Yeah, I think you're you're right. I, I hadn't really considered that, but we do see the fate of a family here. We see family relationships in other stories, like Shadow Rinsmith or Thing on the Doorstep, and so on. But not really a family, a mother and father with children, as we do here, um, and their fate from a happy family at the start, and then you know what becomes of it, and what becomes of the family, and so on. And the kind of breakdown, and the way we can kind of parallel that with you know depression and and uh, and, and so on. Mm. I mean, what you're talking about there with the sort of mental illness aspects of it, 
again, you know, this seems to be going back to a lot of Lovecraft's common themes about kind of degeneration and madness from external influences. And again, yeah, I wonder how much of his you know, feelings about and experiences with his parents is written into this. Yeah, I think the whole thing with his... I mean, his mother suffered from mental illness. His, his father died of syphilis, which, again, you know, it, it destroyed his brain in the process. It's hard not to draw parallels there. Must have, yeah. Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I can certainly see, in some ways, the colour almost being a metaphor for syphilis. I mean, the thing I like about the colour, despite all these parallels you can make with disease and poison and so on, at the same time, it is still utterly alien. Uh, it doesn't fit perfectly into any one of these categories. It seems to, at the same time, be a living entity. It's got a life cycle. It appears as floating vapour at some stage. It is the whole act of shooting off into the clouds afterwards. It's not just like the meteor came here and brought poison with it. This is something indefinable. It's also, thinking of alien, it's also fairly alien in terms of the other mythos creatures that Lovecraft has written about. This is something very much on its own. The way I viewed it, and one of the reasons why I'm, or at least before I read the story anyway, wasn't too enthused about using it as a mythos monster, was that it's basically just a seed that lands in an area, grows and buggers off again, and it creates some havoc in the process. It's, it is almost just like wildlife of the mythos. It's not something that has sentience, or at least not pinned down and said, it wants this. That it's just come there, it's grown and gone again. But it's also the fact that its motivations and what it's doing and so on, we, we only get by inference here. None of this is ever told to us. None of this is ever explained to us. We could just see, be seeing part of its life cycle. We could be seeing aberrant behaviour. We don't know. Well, we'll get into this in a bit more detail when we come back to this discussion and talk about what we can steal for our games. Hmm. To be fair, that's one thing I did find for me. There is a lot you can take out of this. Yeah, and we're going to be looking at some adaptations of The Colour Out of Space. Hmm. And there are many. Oh, God, yes. Yeah, surprisingly more than I thought. Yes, and some of them are actually good. Yeah, Die Monster Die is a great classic. <laughs> <laughs> If this isn't your first time listening to the show, you probably know that we uh, rely an awful lot on Patreon and the generosity of the people who back us through Patreon to actually pay for our hosting costs and equipment and stuff like that. And we have a new backer to thank this week. Hey. So I'd like to say thank you very much to Justin Beach. Thank you very much, Justin. Indeed. Thank you, Justin. Okay, well, until part two, it's goodbye from me. Cheerio from me. And farewell from me. Hello? BlasphemousTomes.com mm -hmm.